0: following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Alright, welcome this evening. Glad that you're all here and joining us online. 2 Kings 24. <clears throat> now, we've got to just go back a little bit uh, in chapter, the previous chapter 23, Uh, Jehoiakim is reigning, gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, and uh, so on. It says in verse 36, he was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebuda, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. In his days, the chapter opens. In his days, that's why we had to go back and find out who his is. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon came up and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done. Yesterday we read with the men a verse in Scripture that said about calamity that God created it. And here He certainly created the calamity for the nation of Judah. Verse 4, "...and also because of the innocent blood that He had shed, for He had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon." Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that He did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land anymore, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnatan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came up against Jerusalem and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiachin king of Judah his mother his servants his princes and his officers went out to the king of Babylon and the king of Babylon in the 8th year of his reign took him prisoner. And he carried him out from there I'm sorry and he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord And the treasures of the king's house, and he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also, he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains, and all the mighty men of valor, ten thousand captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. Then the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatel, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord this happened in Jerusalem and Judah that He finally cast them out from His presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. That was a bad idea as it is clearly shown later in the text of Scripture. But he did and uh, never put it past a sinner to make a bad decision. Right, (laughs) So, that's what happened. Amen. May God bless that reading of His Word tonight. This evening, for the balance of our time, I thought that I would share with you some of the results of my work in the book of Acts. Uh, You might want to turn there, but actually uh, keep uh, maybe keep a bookmark there and then be ready to go back into the Old Testament because that's really where we're headed this evening. In the book of Acts, I observed... That, and you'll do, you'll observe the same thing as well. If you have a Bible that has any kind of, uh, careful uh, typesetting, uh, careful formatting or layout, that the Old Testament quotations are called out in a different format. Maybe they're, uh, in a block quote format, indented or set apart somehow, or in all capital letters. Uh, some Bibles have it that way. Very nicely done, and I think it's helpful to us. But when you run into spot, spots like that in your Bible, uh, like I have, I'm just looking at several here, you want to make sure to look at the footnote next to those and find out where those are from. Okay. And I observed that in the book of Acts, the apostles did not have a New Testament to preach from. So what did they do? (laughs) They didn't do an expositional message on you know Romans chapter three to tell the people how sinful they were, or Romans chapter four and five to tell them about the wonder of justification. They didn't have that available to them. So um, what did they do? Well, they used a different style of preaching, a different method of preaching, and that heavily relied upon the Old Testament text. That in turn alerted me to the fact that if we are to preach the gospel effectively, like they did in the book of Acts, we not only need to have a handle, a grasp on the New Testament text, which we have done over the years here in our church, but also we need to have a good handle on key texts of the Old Testament. Now, I should give you full disclosure with this. It's interesting, if you look in the book of Acts and just ponder through it sometime and turn the pages and look for these quotations, again, set out in special formatting in your Bible, you will see bunches of them in the first chapters of the book of Acts. And then as you go along, they become less and less frequent. You see some in chapter 13, a little bit in chapter 15. Uh, but then you don't see a whole lot after that. What's going on there? What's going on there? Very interesting, I think. The text doesn't tell us explicitly except that it does, by by the, the historical progression of the Gospel, indicate that the apostles began in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And then where did they go? The Gentiles. Well, when you're ministering to Jews, it's easy to bring the Old Testament into the equation because their Hebrew Bible is the Old Testament and they're able to They know what you're talking about when you refer to many different passages of holy holy Scripture. But when you go out and minister to the Gentiles, like Paul did in Acts chapter 17, or on his missionary tours in Acts 13, 14, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, you're not. And of course, he did stop in synagogues too. But you're not ministering so much among people familiar with the Old Testament. So you may have to use different uh, tactics or a different approach. And that he does. In fact, our brother Ben pointed one of those tactics out in Acts chapter 17. Instead of starting with the history of Israel, as often was done in the preaching in the book of Acts, Paul there, before the Areopagus, before that supreme court in Athens, that philosophical body of people, before that group, he started with what doctrine? The doctrine of creation. You will see that in Acts 17. Oh, in verse, um, verse 24, Paul observed all of the altars, all of the idols in the city. And in Acts 17.24, in his address, he said, God who made the world... And everything in it. To the Jewish person, this was well known information. There was no need to even rehearse it. They believed that God created the world. The Gentile from even 2,000 years ago did not believe that God created the world. You know how much has changed today? Nothing. There's no change. They've, you know, the Gentiles, the unbelievers have substituted Evolution for the uh, you know Zeus's and the, and all those different gods that they had cooked up in their minds. They've they've replaced that that god with the god of science, so to speak, to answer the uh, otherwise unanswerable questions to them of the question of origins and purpose and all. But there's nothing different today. Gentiles still don't believe God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And so we do well to note his approach to the, to the teaching of the gospel here. Uh, you have to have a God to, to whom to be accountable uh, or before whom to be accountable before you can uh, consider the need of the gospel of Christ. So he would do that. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. The... The um, preaching in Acts is much centered on the use of the Old Testament. And what the Apostle Paul did can be illustrated. In fact, I'll uh, use Acts 17 since maybe you're there already. And it says that in verse 3, verse 2, Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Okay, so he did use the Scriptures, but he didn't have the New Testament to use. He sa- and it says this, he was explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Where did he get all that? He got all that from the Old Testament Scriptures. Okay, It says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What did he get out of there? He was able to, from that body of literature, explain and demonstrate that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, if he can do it, if he can do this, you can do this. The question is, how did he do this? And then what did he do with it? After he explained and reasoned and demonstrated that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, Then what he did was he said, and this Jesus that I preach to you is that Christ that I just told you about. Does that make sense? The Christ that is predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament, the Christ that had to suffer before His glory, the Christ who had to suffer before His resurrection, that stuff that we talked about there in the Old Testament Scriptures happened just now in Jesus He is He. He he is Him. They're the same person. And so I'm telling you that God has made a promise and He has fulfilled this promise to provide salvation to His people, to all that would come to Him in faith. And so He says, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Paul is the minister of Jesus. He is a proclaimer of Jesus. And he's telling the people who this Jesus is. To do that, effectively, if you were in this very same context or similar evangelistic contexts that you might find yourself in today, you would have to be able to use the Old Testament text to open up somebody's vista into who the Christ is. Now, that is uh, exceedingly difficult with modern a uh, young person today, as we experienced, I think, not, uh, not many days ago, where there is zero biblical literacy. What do you do? I mean, zero. You start from the beginning. I mean, you have to give an overview of the whole thing. And m- even more than that, I mean, an overview isn't even enough. These texts that we're going to go over, we ought to be most familiar with. But a person who is just a neophyte, as it were, somebody who's just coming into contact with the Bible, it's going to be tough for them. So it's going to behoove you to be able to bring them into that experience of knowing the Scriptures. And probably by taking your Bible, explaining what the Bible is, and then turning to particular sections of it and showing them look at what it said, look at this prophecy. Look at what happened. Look at this person they're talking about. Look at Isaiah 53 and so on. So what we want to do is we want to familiarize ourselves with some Old Testament texts that we should have uh, oh thank you, John, well memorized, yeah, that's good, um, in our minds so that we can use them. So I hope you're interested because you should be interested in evangelizing your lost friends and family and neighbors. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of the Psalms, first of all. Psalms are often quoted in uh, the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. We're going to go to Psalm 16, first of all. Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Now, I should caution us, uh, just comes to mind actually came to mind this afternoon as I was pondering this, that not every Old Testament text that is used in the New Testament is a direct prophecy of Christ. I think we talked about this yesterday morning, didn't we, with the men. But many of the ones that I have selected are very direct prophecies of Christ. Um, and But it, it does help us to remember that not all of the texts are like... We've talked about before, Hosea 11 is not a prophecy of Christ. It's just a statement of history. And that statement of history is parallel to or similar to something that happened in the life of Christ. Some of these, though, are a little bit more direct. Psalm 16:8, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. <clears throat> you will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, uh, go back to the book of Acts and find where that quote is used. <clears throat> You'll find it after you, if you begin leafing through Acts 1, 2, and 3. You'll find it very quickly in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 24, Peter preaching says, "...whom God raised up," obviously speaking of Messiah, "...having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held by it. For David says concerning Him..." And then it gives the quotation. My flesh will rest in hope. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life and so on. And then verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, his body has seen corruption, hasn't it? It has seen decay. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh... He would raise up the Christ to sit on His throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that His soul was not left in Hades, nor did His flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. I have two or three bookmarks for this study, okay? So, hang with me. Psalm 16, so... You ought to be somewhat familiar with Psalm 16, those last four verses of that psalm, as a psalm that speaks of the resurrection of Christ. You know, Let's put it this way. If you were limited to only use the Old Testament and your witness to a Jewish friend, would you be able to do it? Well, you ought to be able to do it because Peter was able to do it. You, you know, This book is no mystery. It's not up in heaven that you have to go up there to get it. It's not across the sea that you have to go over there and get it. It's right here. It's near you. It's in your lap Okay. to adapt the phrase that we read this morning. There's really no excuse for us not to know these. We just have to, we have to get busy about studying them. Psalm 16 then, the resurrection of the Messiah. What about uh, the ascension of the Messiah? I know I'm not going to go in any particular order here. I'm just going in the order that I have written the text down on the notes that you have in front of you uh, because th- this is the order that I found them in my study of the book of Acts. Psalm 110. Boy, if you, if you don't know very many psalms, you better know this one. This is maybe the most oft-quoted in the New Testament. I think it is. You can check me out on that. There are actually two verses here that are very significant. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a psalm of David. And David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's happening right now. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father until His enemies are made His footstool. This speaks of the exaltation of Christ. To the Jewish person, this has got to be significant. One who came, was, who suffered, who obviously died, who was risen again from the dead, Psalm 16, has been told to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, undoubtedly, the Jewish person will quibble with the timing of all this. They'll say, well, the Messiah hasn't come yet or something like that. But that's pretty preposterous on the face of all the evidence that we look at. I mean, it's just clear. Something very significant has happened. Um, you don't have to turn there, but let me uh, turn my Bible to the book of Hebrews, and I want to use a parallel passage here to just highlight something in your mind. Hebrews 10 verse number 13. Uh, actually, I'll start in Hebrews 10:11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You know, what a, what a hopeless, repetitive task that is, offering animal sacrifices that, that really never chip away at your sin debt. But this man, after he had offered our one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, the text of the Bible says. So let me ask you this. From verse 13, what is is Jesus' current activity? If I were to give you a multiple choice quiz and it said, at the right hand of God, Jesus is currently A, reigning, B, waiting, C, none of the above. What would your answer be? Waiting. But there are boatloads of Christians who make the assumption that since Jesus is at the right hand of God, He's reigning right now. That's not what Hebrews says. Hebrews says He's waiting until His enemies are made His footstool. He's not reigning on David's throne. He won't do that until He returns on the earth. I know I'm making a kind of a big deal about it, but our friends have to, to learn how to read the Bible. I'm sorry to have to say it that way, but it's, it's tough when you see somebody just making assumptions and then going off and, and you know ridiculing people like me for uh, believing that he's not reigning on David's throne yet. It is important that we take the text plainly as it says. The Lord said, basically, come up here and sit down at my right hand I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. You just sit here and wait a second. A minute. Well, 2,000 years. Okay? Wait. Wait. And I will take care of that business for you. That's very important, but the point, the larger point for the purpose of our message is that Jesus has ascended into heaven. We know that from eyewitness testimony that when Stephen was being stoned, he looked up and he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We know from the apostle who wrote the letter to the Hebrews that Jesus is there at the right hand waiting until His enemies are made His footstool. Um, we know that Jesus taught us that that was going to be the case. So, Psalm 110. Since we're in the Psalms and, and 110 in particular, let's go back to verse number... Uh, well, I'll just continue reading. This is so, this is so amazing. I mean, uh, wait... Sit there waiting till your enemies are made your footstool. And then it says, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. In other words, the Lord shall send the rod of the Lord's strength. The Father shall send the rod of the Son's strength is what it means. Out of Zion. And He's going to say this declaration. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. This is speaking of the kingdom. The kingdom of Christ that will reign. Out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Okay, They're subdued before you. I have, I have subdued them in some basic sense, the Father is saying to the Son. Now you take over. And then verse 4. Not only is He going to rule, He's going to be priest. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then back to the idea of reigning. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of His wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He shall lift up the head. If there's going to be a new priesthood, there has to be a change of the law. That's Hebrews right, right there for you. This is kind of summary of chapter 7 in Hebrews. You have to have a new law because you don't have a, a, a priest from Levi. You have a priest from Judah who will be a priest in a new order, the order of Melchizedek, which is actually not a new order. It's an old order, an old type or style of, of priesthood. But that will also be the case. You've got to be ready to use that verse, especially with Jewish people who are are fixated on the sacrificial system. Uh, let's go back to the beginning of the Psalms. Another one that's used in the Psalms, especially in the context of persecution, is Psalm 2. And while you're turning to Psalm 2, let me just remind you that in Acts chapter 4, One of the two times that Peter and uh, the others are hauled in before the Sanhedrin, they uh, are forbidden to preach in the name of Christ. The second time, of course, they're beaten and then they're let go. But when they returned to their fellow believers, their little church there in Jerusalem, the people prayed in light of this persecution and they said this. Psalm 2 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So, in the context of persecution, the believers who have just been at least their representatives, their pastor... And apostles have been hauled before the the leader of the Sanhedrin council. They pray in recognition that the persecution they're facing is just exactly what Psalm 2 predicted would occur. You with me? So, this kind of ties in nicely with what our brother Jansen said this morning. I've written these things to you that you might not what? Stumble. Stumble. That's John 16, verse 1, and the surrounding context that he went over today. This is, this is another one of those passages that makes it so it's no surprise to us that we're going to face persecution. The rulers of the world, whether they know it or not, whether they're conscious of it or not, hate the things of God. They don't have any compunction about shutting churches. No compunction about spoiling their goods. You know what that means? We're going to fine you so that you obey what we tell you to do. We're going to take your money, MacArthur. We're going to to prohibit you from using the parking lot. We're going to close your church down. We're going to make you meet outdoors. We're going to do everything we can to make your life difficult. They plot vanity. Well, they might succeed for a time, but not in the long run. Because he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He will have them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet, I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. I can only imagine the chafing, the gritting of teeth, that will occur when Christ is established on his throne in Jerusalem and the nations of the earth face his judgment because of their mistreatment of his people Psalm 2 in the context of persecution we can't be surprised i mean you know it's almost it's it's almost like we are surprised because many of us especially those of us who have some years behind us, say, I never thought I would see the day in the United States of America where this kind of thing would begin to occur. I mean, in a sense, you don't believe it. But in a sense, you have to believe it because the Bible is clear that the nations rage against our Lord and against His Christ. Psalm 2. Okay, so we've touched a few of the psalms. There's others that we could do. but um, Yeah, well, let's go to Psalm 2:7. There's another one on my list. Uh, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. This is used in several places in the New Testament and in the book of Acts. And it is connected to the resurrection of Christ. It's not that at the resurrection Christ became the Son of God, nor did He become the Son of God at any point in time like uh, the baptism or when He's incarnated. He's always been the Son. Isaiah 9.6 Unto us a Son is given. Okay, He's pre-existing as Son of God. He's eternally the Son of God. But the declaration of that, the outward manifestation of that will occur, has occurred, Who's declared to be the Son of God with power uh, by the resurrection of the dead has occurred already. And it will be yet again made clear when God installs Jesus on his throne in Jerusalem over the kingdoms of the world. Think about that. People don't believe in Jesus. (laughs) They're going to have to believe in Jesus in some sense. There will be no choice. Because God will declare, you are My Son today, I have begotten you. And this not only relates to the resurrection, but it's also the language of kingship. You think of 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God gave the Davidic covenant and He says of David's offspring, he will, I will be his father and he will be to me a son. That's the language of installing him as king. Again, to be familiar with these is important as we minister the Gospel. Let's go to Amos, way back in the back of your Hebrew Bible as it were, your Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, chapter 5. You don't need Romans chapter 3 to tell the world that they're guilty before God, although it's it's a handy compendium of texts from the Old Testament about that subject. But uh, certainly regarding the nation of Israel, you can start in Amos 5.25. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? And you also carried Sikkut, your king, and Chiyun, your idols, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. If I recall properly, this is used by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Talking about the stiff-necked people of Israel. And he says to the people to whom he's preaching at the time who are making false accusation against him, you're no different than your forefathers in the wilderness for 40 years who some in some sense offered God's sacrifices and offerings, but then they also carried around their false gods, Sikuth and Chiyun, the star of your gods, Your idols, what were they doing? They were having fellowship with the Lord's altar and with demons at the same time. Isn't that interesting? Just what we spoke about this morning. They were trying to have it both ways. One foot on land and one foot in the boat. And they were going to be in trouble because He says, I'm going to send you to Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So the, the idolatry of God's chosen people. And that calls forth other Old Testament texts that we don't, won't get into in detail, but I'll just mention there's Deuteronomy 4.19. God says, don't worship the heavens. You know, Don't worship the sun, the moon, the stars. Why do people do that? Why do you worship a hot, gaseous body in the heavens? It's inanimate. It has no brain, it doesn't speak, it can't do anything except what its Creator made it to do, which is burn hot and shed light. Why why would you worship them instead of the Creator? Well, we know why, because people did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They turned away from the knowledge of God and turned the glory of God into the corruptible Images of four-footed beasts and creeping things and things in the heavens, Romans 1 says. Psalm 81 talks about giving people over to their own hearts. Sin is, sin is a reality. It's dangerous. It needs to be addressed in the Gospel presentation. You can't preach the Gospel without telling people that they're sinners and idolaters and in need of restoration to God. It just can't be that case, that, that way. All right, so that was Amos. Let's turn to Isaiah. We'll hit a couple here in Isaiah and see how our time is. And we'll look at Isaiah 66. We'll kind of work our way backwards here. I've said sometimes to some of our brothers, Isaiah is, among other books in the Old Testament, kind of a black box to most of us. We know a few things about Isaiah, but to understand the whole of it seems like a huge task. You could probably say the same for Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah as well. I mean, massive bodies of biblical text and we have relatively little familiarity with the contents of those books. We need to have that familiarity. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2 is one example. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, And earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. I think it's interesting that God today does not dwell in temples made with hands but He dwells in people that He is redeemed. But this verse in particular is used in the book of Acts to point out that God is infinite and there cannot be made a temple for Him in which to dwell. This you could find uh, in Acts 17. Paul looks around Athens and he sees all these temples and all these idols. And he says, do you think that that building there, or that building there, or that building there, can contain the Creator of the universe? That is silly thinking. God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is infinite. Saul or Saul, Solomon said this in First Kings eight: Heaven of heavens cannot contain you, much less this house which I have built. This is just a, a, a scrap a beautiful scrap it was no doubt from our perspective but it was just a small little piece of real estate in the universe of the infinite god a focus on earthly temples is incorrect and many of our people in the world today have that focus don't they they go i mean there are there are more than 1 billion residents on our planet that still think it's important to go to an idol's temple and to worship the idol. Literally. India and China, um, all over the place, you've got to go. You've got to go to Mecca to worship. Jesus said to the woman at the well, there comes a time when not on this mountain nor on Jerusalem will you worship. Those who worship God will worship in spirit and in truth everywhere across the globe because God is infinite and He's not limited to a temple made with hands. And then, uh, let's go back to Isaiah 55. So again, that Isaiah um, 66 really is is an attack on, on idolatry, which we have much of today. Isaiah 55 is another one where we have an interesting promise. It says in verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. It's an announcement. It's it's an invitation. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to Me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to Me. Verse 3 is where I'm going. Here and your soul shall live. Here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. The promise to David and his greater Son, Messiah, is taught here that Messiah had to rise from the dead. You know, you can't have a... You cannot have an operative promise with a Messiah who is dead. Make sense? So, by implication, these verses that we've looked at that deal with the resurrection of the Messiah, or with Messiah and these future promises, have to show that there's a resurrection of him who suffered and was put into the grave. By, by implication, has to be by, by good and necessary implication, we say, from the Scriptures. And then, of course, two chapters back, Isaiah 53. You have to know these passages. Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, Amos 5, Isaiah 66, Isaiah 55, Isaiah 53. If you don't know any other Isaiah passage, you better know this one. It's so ripe, so full. This, as you may know, is skipped in the annual reading program of the Jews in the synagogue. Almost unbelievably so. But it is. That's what I've heard and learned over the years. And no wonder. It's almost impossible. In fact, there's a video on YouTube that I've seen where people express their astonished... Jewish people in Hebrew with subtitles in English express their astonishment at this chapter, they never knew until they read it and saw what it meant. Uh, it talks about clearly the servant Messiah. Um, he shall grow up, verse 2, before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Uh, verse 3, he's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. this is the Jewish people looking back, written from a retrospective perspective, if you will, looking back and saying, boy, we hid our faces from Him. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, how did we look at Him? We thought He was stricken by God and afflicted. But rather than being stricken by God and afflicted, He was wounded for our transgressions, verse 5 says. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. This is a man who is chastised so that we could have forgiveness of sins. It's clearly what's being talked about here. All we like sheep have gone astray. Who can argue with that? We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Philip. In Acts chapter eight, ran into a man who happened to be reading the next verse. The verse says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment. That really means really the opposite of that, as we looked in detail a few weeks ago. That in injustice and oppression His judgment, His proper justice was taken away. And who will declare His generation? For He was cut off from the land of the living. Don't let the the, the euphemism in the Old Testament uh, confuse you. To be cut off from the land of the living means simply to be killed. He was killed. Why? For the transgressions of My people He was stricken. And then they made His grave with the wicked, but with the rich at His death, because He had done no violence nor was any deceit in His mouth. God was pleased to bruise him. Listen to this. He has put him to grief. The Jewish person will say, Yeah, but there's never been such a thing as a human sacrifice before. There's never a provision in the law that would allow this sort of thing. Well, listen, now there is a provision in the law. Look at verse 53, or 53, verse 10. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and prolong his days. Okay. A man is made into an offering for sin. That's what the text of the Bible says. That's the prophet Isaiah. Can't argue with Isaiah. Okay? Nobody's going to argue that he's, you know, not a Jewish prophet. He is. His soul this this Messiah's soul was made an offering for sin. In verse 11, God will see what he did and he will be satisfied. Boy, there's propitiation. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many for He will bear their iniquities. Then verse 12 implies a resurrection again. Therefore, I will divide Him a portion with the great, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Look, if that's the case, and He was prior to that in the grave and prior to that cut off from the land of the living, what does this verse mean? But that He's raised from the dead. He has to be raised from the dead. If He's going to divide the spoil with the strong because He poured out His soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, and bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. It's only fitting that he would be honored with the utmost honors by God the Father because he bore the iniquities of his people. That's Isaiah 53, 7, and 8. And that is, again, in Isaiah or Acts 8. You find that, Isaiah 53, quoted in Acts 8. And you ought to be familiar with it if you're witnessing to. Jews or to Gentiles. Okay? So, we're going to stop there tonight. We've gotten uh, almost a third of the way through my list, okay? So, we have I have almost 30 texts of the New, of the Old Testament that we should have some level of familiarity with. You have them all listed there on your notes. You can make a study of those or wait until the next time when we work on some more of these to give you some more comments on them. But I hope it's helpful and I hope Beyond that, that this study, as it did for me, inspires you to say, hey, I can do some of this. I can know some of these texts. If I'm witnessing to somebody and I don't, you know, maybe I don't know them cold like in my memory, I can still open my Bible, turn to them, and say, hey friend, listen to this. Just let's read this. Let's think about what it says. Let's talk about you know, sin and uh, the Messiah's self-sacrifice and His resurrection from the dead your need of salvation. And you can do that all from the Old Testament by selecting a number of texts out of there in any variety of ways. Dozens of combinations. There's no you know, uh, formula here. You, you use the texts as they, are, as they come up in the conversation as the topics need to be covered with the person that you're witnessing to. So may it inspire you to say, I'm going to take this up I'm going to learn the Scriptures just another notch better than where I'm at now, and I'm going to use that in witnessing to people. And uh, I can almost guarantee you, you study the text with that in mind, God's going to give you somebody who you're going to say, ah, I know a text I can read with them. Have you ever had that experience happen? You know, I was reading a text, and then two days later, somebody asked me a question about that text, and I had it right in my head already. Um... I can't explain that, but uh, the more familiar you are with Scripture, the better you're able to minister to people that you come in contact with randomly. And you just need to know this stuff because um, you know, it's not going to necessarily be on your calendar. Witness to so-and-so when you, they ask me a question at work or after work or whatever. You've got to be ready. So maybe, maybe this inspires you to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you'd help us to know your book including what we call the Old Testament, but which is just as much a part of the Bible as the New Testament. There's no distinction and inspiration between the two sections of the library. In fact, I would prefer to just drop the nomenclature altogether and just call it one whole Bible instead of two testaments because people get so turned around with that notion of an old and a new. And so... Help us, Lord, to know the Psalms, Isaiah, some of the minor prophets, some of these key texts. And Lord, although we know that we can continue to add to our list and it can grow bigger and bigger as we become more knowledgeable in Your Word, let that not daunt us from beginning the task of knowing a few verses here and there in the Old Testament to be able to witness effectively Not only to the Jew, but also to the Greek. In Jesus' name, Amen.